Hello everybody and welcome back to Sequelize It, where we tackle the triumphs and di dissect the disasters of modern movie franchises. Straight out of Bespin, I'm a crazy mother nerf herder named KC, and joining me today are... I am your Foxy from Backlash, Ace X-Wing pilot. And I'm no Chris Alive, Dark... <laughs> Sequelize its Mastodon of the Monotone. <laughs> I'm just trying very hard. I'm trying very hard to concentrate. <laughs> ah, yeah, this does not. This when we didn't want me. I, I don't. I, I have like one wrestling reference in this whole in this whole episode. That's how good this movie is. For those of you who are joining us or or are listening again, we're talking about. The Star Wars Skywalker Saga, and we're talking about what is the best Star Wars movie, Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Going into this movie, I knew I was going to have a fun time watching it, and yeah, it's still just as good as I remember. Uh, what about you, Backlash? What are your initial thoughts going back to rewatch it? I mean, obviously, this is a movie I watched hundreds of times as a kid and rewatching it again really it's just as good as i remember it yeah um i've seen it just a couple of times before and i've always had respect for it and and again this viewing was among the easiest probably the easiest it was it's just such a evenly paced easy ride throughout yeah it doesn't take a it doesn't take much effort to to watch this movie you can turn it on and be fine and not really think about it. We'll still try and break it down as critically as we can, but I think most of our points are going to be, yeah, this is just a good movie. So, just for a little bit of background on the movie, The Empire Strikes Back was written by Lee Brackett, who wrote such classic movies as The Long Goodbye, The Big Sleep, and El Dorado. And Lawrence Kazan, writer of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and wait, he he wrote the Bodyguard. He wrote the Whitney Houston Kevin Costner movie. Huh. Apparently so. Fun fact: uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. He named the sheriff after him. Sheriff Lee Brackett, played by Charles Cyphers. Uh, Lee Brackett is actually a woman, by the way. Ah, yeah. O oops. Luke <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because Lucas actually had the same uh, reaction when he initially was looking for someone to write The Empire Strikes Back because he didn't want to write it himself. Um, he reached out to Lee Brackett and was informed that it was the same Lee Brackett who had written The Long Goodbye and The Big Sleep. And he was like, wait, you're that Lee Brackett? So uh, apparently many people in Hollywood thought that Leah Brackett was a man. But no, she's she was a woman, and she is a rather prolific writer and wrote a lot of good movies. Also, this movie was not directed by George Lucas. It was directed by Erwin Kirshner, whose other works include a bunch of movies no one has ever heard of. <laughs> the non-canon James Bond movie, Never Say Never Again, uh. and... Robot Robocop 2. He also directed Robocop 2. His filmography is weird. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb on saying that this is probably the best movie he ever made. The film had a budget of 33 million 
and made an astounding $550 million at the box office through its various releases. Um, at the time of its release, it was the highest grossing sequel of all time, as often considered not just one of the best sequels, but one of the best films of all time. Considered the Star Wars movie that Lucas had the least amount of direct involvement in, uh, this led to a power struggle during the filming of the movie, Lucas becoming more and more cup corporate as production wore on, even attempting to edit the movie himself at one point, and Ern Kirshner was tasked with trying to keep the production on schedule and on budget and keeping the miserable cast and miserable crew happy while also executing his vision for the film. With Gary Kurtz, the producer, stuck in the middle, though he often sided with Kirshner. Perhaps the reason that this movie has the least amount of added scenes, special edition-wise, is because Kirshner shot the movie in a way that the film had to be edited according to his vision. Needless to say, after putting up with Lucas's shit throughout the entire production of this movie, Kirshner did not want to direct the follow-up to Empire, and Lucas would go on to find someone more willing to just shut the fuck up and do whatever the hell he wanted. Hmm. Yeah. <sighs> So if you're looking for an origin story of corporate George Lucas, this is basically it. This is George Lucas when he was trying to build Skywalker Ranch. For those who don't know, Skywalker Ranch was supposed to be the mecca of filmmaking. the dollars into that while Lucasfilm was just getting more and more corporate in that way that only corporate culture in the early... 80s could have been lots of CEOs and executive vice presidents and secretaries who were had a big enough salary to buy their own Mercedes Benzes. Um, this this was basically the movie where you could say Lucas probably probably was in the beginning stages of losing himself. And you know, as I said, there there is a reason why Kirshner, despite the massive critical and audience reception of this movie did not want to work with Lucas after this. And I, I legitimately can't blame him for that. We should also uh, give credit to Lawrence Kasdan, who we'll be speaking about more when we talk about the sequel trilogies, but he also has a co-writing credit on this and he had co-wrote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. He wrote and directed the movie Body Heat and he went on to, to do the big chill, the accidental tourist, and Stephen King's Dreamcatcher. Yeah, so he was very pro. He's become very prolific in his yes. own way. It it was kind of funny researching and not realizing that he had had his hand in so many really good movies. Yeah, and and also solo a Star Wars movie. Yeah, <laughs> we don't hold him. We don't hold that against him though, because no, I'm pretty he- sure the problems with that movie aren't his fault. Yeah, when they when they give you a bag of money to to write a bunch of redundant shit, I'm like, I would, why, why wouldn't you take it? I mean, I would. Please, Lucasfilm, Disney, give me money. I will I will bang out a Star Wars movie so quick, and I promise I won't upset any fans or anything. I promise. There, there is literally oh, no, no upset way that... fans. There's, there's no way you can't. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's get into breaking down the movie with, of course, Act 1. 
there's an old Klingon proverb that says that revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, if that's the case, the dish must have been served on Hoth because it's the coldest place in the entire freaking galaxy. Because the entire planet is inhospitable to human life, the Rebellion has set up shop on a planet in the hopes that the Empire won't think they're dumb enough to actually set a base there. Up in space, the Empire and Darth Vader send down probe droids to Hoth because the Empire realizes the Rebellion is dumb enough to actually set a base there. We once again meet Luke Skywalker, who sees one of the drones crash into the ice, but for some reason he figures it's just a meteor. Or a meteorite, rather. He lets Han know he's gonna check it out, but before he makes his way over there, he's wounded and captured by a horrible practical effect. For anyone who thinks that practical effects are sacrosanct, they are not. Back in the base... Han is just about ready to leave the Rebellion, seeing as though that whole Jabba the Hutt wants him dead thing is still hanging over his head. The Falcon is barely functional, but as soon as it's up and running, Han wants out. Leia is none too pleased to hear Han once again trying to leave the Rebellion, especially because this is only the second movie, and it'd be kind of weird if he pieced out in the middle of a trilogy. Han implores Leia to just admit that she's super into him, but she's got big Julia Stiles doesn't want to admit she's into Heath Ledger and 10 Things I Hate About Chew energy, so she's not going to admit it if she can help it. Back in, back in a scene from Monsters, Inc., Luke has been hung upside down by the least convincing Yeti ever. Before he can become a Luke sickle, Luke is able to quiet his mind and use the Force to free his lightsaber, cut off the abominable snowman's arms, and escape into the wilderness. Upon hearing that Luke is still missing, Han goes after him with a tauntaun. The search appears not to be going well, and C-3PO, R2-D2, Chewie, and Leia watch with impending dread while the shield doors close for the night. Luke has a vision of Obi-Wan telling him he has to go to Dagobah and find someone named Yoda, but doesn't use the Force to, like, give Luke a space snuggie or something. Luke nearly succumbs to hyperthermia before Han finds him, slices open his tauntaun, so that's how Arby's makes their sandwiches, and shoves him inside while he sets up camp. Luckily, by daybreak, the rebels find Luke and are able to get him up and running. Also, Luke and Leia kiss, but Lucas doesn't know Leia is Luke's sister yet, so stop bitching about it. Up on the executor, a really stupid admiral swears up and down that the rebels couldn't be dumb enough to set up a base on Hoth. Vader insists that they are there, either because he's using the Force to track Luke, or because he's not dumb enough to dismiss the evidence of the probe droids saying that there are life forms on the planet. On that note, the Rebellion realizes that the jig is up and that they need to get the hell off the ice rock to a place slightly more hospitable, like Mustafar, or the surface of a nearby sun, or the cold <laughs> vacuum of space. <laughs> they make preparations to fight the Empire on the ground while Han and Chewie prepare to leave the Rebellion, with Luke and Han not being able to just say they love and will miss each other, because damn it, they are men and men don't express feelings. Back on the Executor, the idea that Anakin can be redeemed takes yet another hit when he straight up murders the Admiral in cold blood, just became just because they came out of hyperspace too soon. He may not be a whiny prick anymore, but Anakin is still an evil, sadistic asshole. The rebels take on the AT-ATs on Hoth, and a bunch of people die, and they fight, 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 until the Empire is able to take out the power generator. 
Han comes back to make sure Leia gets out of Dodge instead of dying for the cause, and she, along with C-3PO and Chewbacca, narrowly escape capture by Vader himself aboard the Falcon. Meanwhile, Luke manages to blow up one AT-AT on his own because Luke is basically John Cena, and John Cena never jobs if he can help it. Luke is able to get into his X-Wing with R2-D2 in tow and sets course for the Dagobah system in search of a great warrior named Yoda, who was most definitely a badass warrior and not at all someone who sounds like Miss Piggy. <sighs> Pretty good? Yeah. Yeah. It's On the so... subject of terrible practical effects, <laughs> the, uh, the original cut of the movie smartly cut out most of that. Because it, it looked terrible. Yeah, the original cut, like, you only see l- little flashes of it. It still looks bad, but there's less of it. You mean, you mean the Yeti? <laughs> no, he wasn't a mummy. Well, well yeah, but... <laughs> but no, I, still, no. I still think that that reference is applicable. Eh, no, it's never not. Uh, Halloween Havoc 1995. Check it out if you're not a wrestling fan. It's it's a fun and watch. If you if you love camp movies, you'll love that wrestling show. But yeah, I think initially there have been times when I've watched this movie where I thought that this act dragged, but watching it this time, I think it helps sometimes to see the movies in order. Because I don't think the film necessarily drags. I think it's just, it's doing its job setting up the atmosphere of just how kind of screwed the Rebels are at this point. Yeah, I mean, a- anyone could joke about them being on on an ice-cold planet, but they're doing that out of sheer desperation mm-hmm. in the hopes that, like, that again, the Empire wouldn't suspect that they'd be there. And surprise, the only one who does is has a pretty keen grasp of the force. So as we're going through this movie, it's becoming a lot harder to justify Darth Vader being redeemed. We talked about this at the end of the prequels, how we didn't feel like we could see where it's going. And like Vader straight up kills like at least two people who are, For all intents and purposes, just trying to do their jobs immediately. I, I feel like it's a thing they just kind of came up with for Return of the Jedi to kind of put a bow on the whole character arc. You could tell there's a lot of stuff they just came up with in Return of the Jedi. That, but that's a whole other thing, which we'll get to next episode. But uh, yeah, uh, going back to um, the Abominable Snowman. <laughs> first off, let's add this to another uh, tick on the traumas of Luke Skywalker. Oh yes, you you mentioned that you you weren't able to put some on the list, so so let's clarify. No, no, I, I mean, I mean, I I, I kind of got all the ones I wanted to last episode, but yeah, this this is definitely another one. And of course, the the reason they did this whole scene is because Mark Hamill was in a terrible car accident uh, before uh, before shooting, and his face was all fucked up. So we got to find a way to do that in the movie. Yeah, we we want to find out how he got his scars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, which honestly, it's not even that noticeable if you look at him. Well, I always find it funny if we ever wa- if uh, you watch the Star Wars Christmas special that he's under. So- why why didn't we watch the Star Wars Christmas special for this show? No, uh, the less said, the better. Move on. Keep right. Anyways, 
if you watch it, the one scene he's in, they're using like a hundred different filters and you can tell he's got heavy makeup on one side of his face. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you look at like the, the teen beat glamour shots he was taking in the 70s, then you you would better be able to tell. I feel like if you're around our age and you're just used to Mark Hamill looking like Mark Hamill, then it doesn't really... It's it's not really jarring, you know. It, obviously, plastic surgery at that point wasn't as advanced as it is today, because he probably could have gotten reconstructed surgery and been looked pretty much like he had always looked. But in but yeah, it, it's a it was a bad omen of the production of this fucking movie because everyone was miserable during it. Anyways, I think that this has a pretty distinctly effective uh, narrative underpinning. He's because although Luke has gained a degree of confidence since the first movie, we still see that in moments of desperation, he relies on on Obi Wan, specifically his own like the the specter of Obi Wan to to sort of give him some kind of inspiration, like. His his grasp of the force is just developing as we're seeing with him just being able to, to dig his lightsaber out of the out of the the, the snow, and uh, it's a neat little building block to to his later interactions with Yoda. Yeah, it's 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 clear that he believes in the force and thinks that the force exists, but it's going to be interesting as we go through the movie to see him trying to almost come to terms with just how powerful the Force actually is. Right. We can talk a little bit about Han and Leia's relationship coming really to the forefront. It, I do think it's a little bit... Um, in the beginning, I feel like it's a little bit forced. Like, yes. Han is just like, oh, you like me. And <laughs> I'm like, wait. What? Why? Because that's clearly not something that happened in... Yeah, no, it it, it feels forced because, you know, we didn't really have that in uh, the first movie. Uh, the most we had was the one scene where Han is asking Luke, hey, do you think uh, a girl like her could ever fall for a guy like me? And, of course, Luke just instantly responds, no. <laughs> uh, no, I think she likes nerds who bullseye <laughs> womp rats. <laughs> But yeah, it, it it's something they obviously wanted to set up. So it's like, well, it hasn't been established. I guess we're establishing it now. It's just a little sloppy, but it feels a lot more natural as we go on through the movie, mostly because there's a natural charisma between Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. Yep. Yeah, they make you believe it. But in the beginning, I think that's a little bit, one of the reasons why Lawrence Kasdan was brought on to help with the screenwriting is because the original pass of the script by Lee Brackett was a little bit too old school, a little bit written too much like old movies. And I think this is their, the beginning of their relationship is very much a byproduct of that. It's very much a, you know, a strapping young man with a almost damsel ish character, you know, and the man basically forces the woman to love her. It's very, it's very Rhett Butler and Scarlet kind of relationship, which 
is weird because that's not what the relationship is in the later movie. So I feel like this is just a byproduct of that original first draft. But yeah, as far as the first act of this movie, I mean, it's this movie's weird, right? Because it's so economical with the way it's shot that it doesn't leave a lot of space for interpretation. Like in in A New Hope, I felt like we had to do a lot of implying what the characters wanted, what the characters were thinking. In this movie, it is very much on the screen. This is what the characters want. This is what the characters are thinking. You know, this is where the story is going. It's a lot deeper than A New Hope in a lot of ways. And it makes you not want to question as much of it. Right. There, there's a lot less uh, introduction to the to this mythology and this world via somewhat uh, confusing imagery. Um, you don't have to be introduced to, to droids and what they do. You don't have shots of wolfmen and insectmen and devilmen. <laughs> just just fairly fairly straightforward interactions with with things. And also, yeah. and the good thing is, moving on, like the audience being used to to this world with the craze that was the first movie, you also get a good sense of how relationships between the characters have have developed. How, again, Han Solo is far more buddy buddy with Luke, despite the fact that he still tries to leave. He, you could see that he regrets it. Um, Leia and Han, as as you were saying before, like he's actively courting her now. And and in general, like the the, the moment of um, of Chewie uh, sending off Luke before he goes to fight with the rest of the rebels, where where it's like you think that they're gonna hug a little, and then Chewie just grabs him affectionately. I mean, this is something we're gonna talk about in the tr- sequel trilogy. I guess there's a point in the trilogy in the sequel trilogy where you're like, how are all these people friends? We've never seen these people interact. Um. This, we have seen them interact, and you do get a sense of, like, the places where they are with each other in this story is very understandable. It's very natural. These are natural extensions of the relationships that we saw in A New Hope. Uh, Another thing I wanted to point out was just how fucking huge the executor, the main uh, Star Destroyer is. So, initially, when we get, when we see star destroyer we're like oh shit that's a star destroyer that's bad and then you see another way way bigger star destroyer and it's like okay it kind of gives a sense that we only saw like a tenth of the empire's actual power yeah it's one of those things where it's like how do we constantly show that this is a massive threat that our heroes are woefully underprepared for. And it's very simple. Make it bigger. Make it scarier. Yeah. And this is also reflected in the in the ground battle on Hoth with the the enormity of the Adats, the um versus essentially just a bunch of gra- ground troops and a bunch of tiny ships. Yeah. They are completely overmatched and totally outgunned. Which... It takes it takes ingenuity over over attrition or size. Yeah, which again, you don't get that sense in a new hope. You get in in a new hope, you get the sense that the rebellion and the empire are kind of almost equals, and the thing that's going to decide the fate of the universe is the Death Star. 
But here you can see just how totally boned the rebellion is if they don't yeah. like do something and do something big. Because again, not to get into it, but it's no one. It's no wonder the first order is a thing in the sequel trilogy because they just have tons and tons of these huge star destroyers, and they could be just chilling out, waiting to use them. Maybe they're on some weird plant, some weird lightning planet with a, a zombie who should be dead. But, uh, <laughs> anywho, <laughs> anything else on the first act we want to point out before we move on? I just want to say, and how many video games have I had to replay that scene at, uh, during the Battle of Hoth? Um, in all of them, I think is the right answer. <laughs> Probably. I I think I've kind of grown to hate the Snowspeeders, if only because of the first Rogue Squadron game. Uh, they were because every, shit in that game. Uh, yeah, and every time there's this mission with an AT-AT, you're forced to use it, because it's like, oh no, I can't try and fight it with traditional weapons. I gotta do the tow cable trick. I think it's in... I think that's actually in one of the rogue squadron sequels as well they make you do it again you get to you get to play a little bit as as luke which is kind of i guess it's fine but still it's like i don't want to be in, can i just fly the freaking x-wing can i just fly the limo and do this do this mission please and i had a playstation boo ah. and what is the uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy who gets promoted after Anakin Admiral just. Piet. Yeah, Admiral Piet. Poor guy. How he spent the entire movie shitting his pants. Yeah. He's like, I don't want to piss him off. I don't want to piss him off. I just don't want to piss him off. I just want to do my job. Please, please don't kill me. Please. It actually kind of made me appreciate the the sort of awkward Kylo Ren scenes more. Just as a sort of contrast from that. Because yeah. I, I completely forgot about like how many cutaway shots to to worried generals there were in this movie, and there are a lot. Yeah, anytime something goes bad, all the all the troops look like they feel like their shit is gonna get wrecked real oh. fast. Yeah, they just they just want to make sure that they don't say something wrong or piss off Vader, because you know. He'll just murder them. I, I remember I, I, I read something or, or watched something on YouTube about how the Empire has no way to sustain itself if this is how they conduct themselves. Because basically you're just setting up people to either become rebels or get themselves killed. That is true. I mean, there's, that's always the problem with the Sith. Like, Yoda... Yoda says that the reason there are never more than two Sith at a time is basically because the Sith can't be trusted to not kill each other. Which almost makes you wonder how the Sith can maintain itself if everyone just wants to murder each other in a quest for more power. Well, the Sith but, was never even... I don't think the Sith was ever mentioned in the original trilogy, but that, the key to surviving in the Empire is... To stay unnoticed, do your job, and stay a lowly officer. If you ever get promoted, you are fucked. Yeah, just yeah. be a guy in the background turning a knob. Yeah, just just 
be a guy in the background turning a knob and hope that Vader never ever looks at you. Make sure your uniform is pressed, make sure your boots are shined, and make sure that you never grumble about the fact that you haven't gotten a, a work break yet. Because he will just murder you, you know, just because you want to go eat your PB&J. So with that, do we want to move on to Act 2? Yes, we could get started on that. All right, because this is where the bulk of the movie happens. Oh, <laughs> I'll just feed through it. Um, <laughs> anyway, Act 2. Han, Leia, and Chewie, and the droids manage to hide within the asteroid. Their maneuvering through the field is pretty impressive, but perhaps not as impressive as escaping a gravity well after escaping a spacefaring great old one. Luke, <laughs> despite being a good pilot, runs afoul of some thick fog and crash lands in the dense mire of Dagobah. As we hear the Empire March theme for perhaps the half-dozenth time, Vader intimidates Admiral Piet. Han, having attempted to flex around Leia, gets lucky when the Falcon rocks and they end up holding each other in an awkward anime moment. Luke and R2-D2 feel lost and forlorn until a hairy green Muppet is revealed as stalking them. Yoda, stricken with cabin fever and guilt for doing nothing while an entire galaxy collapsed around him, has become funny, charming, appealing, and a practical effect. <laughs> Leia and Han finally take the next step in their relationship with a kiss. Whoever was involved in, with Blade Runner saw the scene and said, reciprocation when a character makes a physical move? Even the slightest chemistry? chemistry? What is that? <laughs> Darth, Vader, Darth Vader speaks to the newly introduced Emperor, a shadowy man with a monkey eye and a cloak. Yoda reveals who he is along with his reluctance to train Luke, despite ghostly Obi-Wan's insistence. Outside the Falcon, some creepy winged proboscis aliens serve as a minor inconvenience. They found out that, that they're within the maw of a cute space worm, but quickly escape. Luke goes through gr grueling phases of training, from doing swamp par parkour with a Muppet on his back to moving objects with his mind while handstanding with an annoying trash can beeping at him, to seeing visions of Vader, but with his, face, with his own face in the helmet. In the midst of Luke's training, his new mentor tells him about aspects of the Force such as his, its limitless potential and the dark side's lack of superiority over the light side. On the Falcon, Han needs to evade sev several Imperial vessels with a busted hyperdrive. Darth Vader plots the hero's capture via a rogue gallery of bounty hunters, including the most overhyped of them all, Boba Fett. The heroes stay out of the Empire's way by barnacling on a Star Destroyer. Once the coast appears to be clear, they head towards Hopeful Sanctuary in the direction of Han's old friend. Unbeknownst to them, Boba Fett is in pursuit, kind of. Boba Fett is basically the Roman Reigns of these movies. It's, Roman Reigns well, that's actually funny, because number one, Roman Reigns is good now. Number two, Boba Fett is good now. Exactly. That's where I was going with it. It's like, you don't understand why he's such a big deal, because he doesn't really do anything. And then all of a sudden, he's the coolest motherfucker on the planet, and I want to buy his shirt. That's that's the exact thing. Yes. Watch SmackDown, folks. <laughs> but yeah, if we could talk about one, good, one thing that they changed uh, between the original and special edition... There was a plot justification uh, where we found out that Boba Fett is is a clone of of Jango Fett, so they had to put Timur Morrison's voice in. The, I in noticed the that, dude. The, in the older edition, I forgot what his his name is. Um, the older Emperor, uh, Jeremy Bullock. Jeremy Bullock. He sounds so fucking like edgy. Like he, he's like, they're worth more to me alive. Like it, it's just so much more more inflection in his voice versus Morrison, which is just like a, a more cool 
not going to try a New Zealand accent, but. Another thing I noticed though, uh, I'm not 100% sure on this because I watched the, um, the original cut uh, yesterday and uh, the new cut today. Did they change the emperor's voice as well? Yeah, it was Clive Reville was the original one. And actually Ian McDermott kind of sounds like him. Like it was pretty similar. I find that effect of the emperor to be kind of distracting the uh, in the new version it's very distracting because you can tell it's it's not of the time this movie looks very very good yeah like it looks incredible especially compared to a new hope all the effects are better it's just you know they got a bigger budget and you can see where the budget went to work but then you you shove an effect of the emperor and it looks kind of off it looks it looks like those two people shouldn't be in the same room which is weird because it's a hologram but it just it looks just the teensy tiniest bit not right i mean i would go so far as to say that they're both kind of well the newer effect because it's it's supposed to be more in line with the prequels and thus looks a bit jarring but the older effect i think is a little bit odd it's that's almost like the one thing that looks like new hope weird the, the, what they decided to go with, where it's it's some woman in a cloak, and they imposed like a, a monkey eye over it. Hmm. I guess I would have to go back and act because I I haven't seen any. I I ha- didn't. I didn't get the completely legal, uh, despecialized editions. So, um, I'm just going off my vague knowledge of of the original cut but I, I i just it stuck out that it was kind of looked weird to me yeah so does anyone notice the the late motif the musical late motif that occurs most in this movie at least from my judgment is it the imperial march yes <laughs> every cut every cut to an establishing shot of the executor or some other um some other star destroyer you hear the the famous empire march and you you essentially like that must be like the second most recognizable uh, piece of music from John Williams, aside from the the main theme. Like, to and, be f- and that's that's probably the reason. It's a good theme. Yeah. To be fair, it is a banger. So they were going to use it as many times as they could because it's that good. Um, yeah. I feel like I. There's so much good John Williams music. I feel like you could just have a podcast about just how good the soundtracks to these movies are. Even yeah. if that does come, even if it does come up a lot, the the places where he chooses to invoke the main theme or Luke's theme or Leia's theme, it's the places are chosen so meticulous, meticulously that it doesn't strike me as it doesn't get old to me. And I, 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 I wish I could say I noticed it more, but I was just too into the movie to really notice it. Yeah, and John Williams himself, for, for just Hollywood film in general, I don't think there's anyone more recognizable or who has contributed to mimetically like more culturally significant uh, film scores than him. Perhaps, perhaps Bernard Herrmann, maybe. We will talk uh, about him several weeks later. I mean, Danny Elfman, mate. I mean... Oh, yes, yes. He, how many great Danny Elfman themes are there? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, actually, probably more than him. I mean, John yeah. Williams has, has Jaws, Raiders, and Star Wars, and Superman. But 
but yeah, Danny Elfman may actually. Yeah. I, and this could be personal bias as a Simpsons fan, but. I mean, but, if I had to pick between the two, I'd probably pick John Williams, but but that's 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 a discussion for another podcast. The interactions between Yoda and Luke are fascinating to me because of where Luke's character eventually goes over the course of this movie and the sequel trilogy. Yeah. What he the knowledge he imparts on Luke is it's hard to put in it's hard to put into words how effective it is in explaining what the force is, how it works without having to go into its microscopic aliens that live in your blood. Basically, it's all we ever needed. Yeah. You know exactly what the Force is. And I think this is an interesting... It's an interesting place to put Luke, because in the first movie, he is so gung-ho, and he's such a team player. And in this movie, you see some of that that I was going to go to Tashi Station and get some power converters, brightiness, or not brightiness, but cynicism. Like, he he believes in the Force, but he doesn't... He doesn't have a knowledge of the Force that will, will allow him to understand just how powerful it actually can be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He doesn't completely grasp him. The, the sort of... The, that kind of acting style or that sort of character portrayal makes so much sense in this movie. But speaking of Yoda, the combination of the direction and Frank Oz's acting, the way he moves from seemingly crackpot and completely out there to to absolutely clairvoyant and reverent, like just in one line or in, or in one exchange is, is impressive as heck. Like Yoda is just hilarious in this movie, but also, but also like you're, you're kind of in awe, like when he becomes more composed and you, you believe what he's saying. Yeah. You absolutely buy everything that he says you buy. And not just from a, from a pure, just from a puppetry standpoint, right? Like the way Yoda acts initially, the way he is puppeteered, First, it gives it, it's grounded and weighted, but also he just seems like a goofball and a, and a crackpot. And you know, I can imagine people who initially watch this movie being like, "Oh, great, here comes a comic relief." But then, like, I don't know. There's something about the way you can't say it's the way Yoda holds himself, but the way that Frank Oz manages to emote through Yoda. It's so effective that you just are like, well, of course it's the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy. Of course this guy trained Obi-Wan. Of course. He's yeah. he, he's he's almost regal, you know, and it it shows what almost what a disservice the prequels do to Yoda because prequel Yoda just seemed like such an idiot and so fanatically attached to stupid religious dogma. And here we get bits and pieces of that, but we also get a Yoda I feel is a lot more... He's been reflective of his time away. And I I can't say enough about 
Frank Oz and the amazing job he he did in this movie. Um, you, you know, I, I I actually think it's so great. It actually makes me a little mad because Luke spends most of his time not listening to him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, motherfucker, shut up and listen to him. Ooh. He knows what he's talking about. I don't care that he's only a foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> he he is very much a, a a young male in his mid twenties. He thinks he knows it all, and he doesn't know shit. Not yet, anyways. Uh, I don't know if I should bring it up here or or if I should wait until the last Jedi to say this, but. I guess the way I can put it is simply this, that pay close attention. If you, if you are wondering why certain characters in the sequel trilogy seem stronger than Lucas at the same point, just remember how cynical Luke is, how much, how much he questions the power of the force and how much he he believes in it, but he doesn't quite buy it. He doesn't quite a hundred and ten percent think it's as big as Yoda is trying to teach him. Um, and, and at the same time, you can kind of understand Luke's skepticism. Uh, we later learn that, of course, Yoda's testing is he's testing his patience throughout. Like, yeah, any any kind of like this bit of training, he has him on his back while he's he's running this obstacle course. He's ranting at him throughout the entire time. And in in a way, but yeah, that I mean, that's pretty much all I need. To say. I completely lost lost the <laughs> the flow of what I was I mean, he said the reason why he is reluctant to train Luke is because Luke is reckless, and yeah. it's hard it's hard not to disagree with him because Luke is kind of reckless, even in A New Hope. You know, flying off world, even in the event that his family is killed flying off world with an old man, a hairy dude and a criminal is pretty reckless trying to save the princess without having a plan because he just knows it's the right thing to do is pretty reckless. He takes off for Dagobah without telling anybody where he's going when they are readying up to, to take off. He tells everyone that he's going to meet them at the rendezvous point. He makes no mention of where they're going. And R2, in his own little way, because in a cool bit of what I thought was a cool thing, is that Luke can actually see what R2 is saying on his readout in the X-Wing. And so what I imagine R2, because you'll notice that like R2 and Luke basically have a full conversation when he's in the X-Wing. And then when the X-Wing crashes and R2 is out of the X-Wing, he's, like, ranting and raving in the way only R2 can. And Luke says something to the effect of, I hope what you're saying is that you have a bad feeling about this or something like that. The one phrase that keeps getting repeated through all these movies. Yeah. Uh but he doesn't understand R2 at all. And even R2, who is himself kind of reckless, is like, dude, this seems like a... Wait, we're not we're not going to join up with the Rebellion? Why? Why aren't we going there? 
and looks like we're going to the Dagobah system. And I imagine R2 is like, why the fuck are we going all the way out to the space boonies? What is the point? <laughs> well, we're going to meet a powerful Jedi Yoda. This seems like a really, really bad idea. If you want to do this, just do it by yourself. That's okay. I want to fly on manual for a little while. That's that's the hand headcanning of the conversation I think they had. I gotcha. To sort of shift gears a, a bit, uh, one thing that that I think is a genuine flaw, but maybe with no fault of the person I'm accusing. Uh, do you think that Alec Guinness, in in the short time that he appears in this film, doesn't really have as much of the command of the of the screen as he did in the first one? Oh no, and there's a very good reason for that. It's because he doesn't care anymore. Yeah, that it makes sense. Like every time, like during the scenes with his force projection, he's his looks are very unsubtle. His his line reading is is pretty pedestrian. Like I guess it's it's a matter of like expecting so much and and coming coming up with so little, despite despite there being very slight chance for 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 him to turn out a good performance. But I don't know. I think it's it's. I think it's since come out that Alec Guinness wasn't exactly happy with his role in this movie. No, he right. was like he he is very much on record as when he saw the first Star Wars movie, he was shocked and appalled at how terrible it was and felt embarrassed that he had been involved in it. But right. now he was under contract to come back for the next two movies, so he just phoned it in. Yeah, yeah. He didn't like the project from the beginning. He which is to say Star Wars and like uh he was happy to do it for the money, but but even still, like he turned out his performance. I'm I'm just wondering if like bringing this up is a is a nitpick. No, I don't think so. He's fairly flat and not emotive, which is weird given how warm and inviting and cunning he seemed in A New Hope. Here, he is very much just like he is a dude reciting lines because yeah. he is contractually obligated to recite lines. Look. Um, we also get uh, Han and Leia. This is where their relationship really starts to become cemented. C three cock block PO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically ruining their first kiss. One of the things that uh, I researched was basically that that C three PO wasn't initially supposed to be in that scene. Leia was just supposed to walk away but Kirshner liked the uh, he liked C3PO to be kind of a bit of levity and comedy comic relief so basically on set that they came up with that you know C3PO would come in cock block Han and then Leia would escape on her you know not escape because that makes it sound more cringy than it is no um, she like, I mean as I sort of summarize, she she reciprocates. Um, it kind of like when I watched this scene for the first time in a in a while, like I was kind of worried that it would come off similarly to to Deckard and Rachel and and Blade Runner, where where it's yeah. like content warning, like you can not really recommend that film to people as visually stunning as it is because they're I would consider what Deckard does to Rachel as assault. But we see that Leia reciprocates. We there there is chemistry in the in both actors. They probably didn't dislike each other while filming, so 
so this came out like significantly better than than I was I was hoping. Um, did did they did Han fly them into an asshole just for just just for clarification? Did he actually just fly him into some worm's butt? <laughs> no, I would assume it was the mouth. I don't know how he how he'd fly in the into the worm's butt. Well, because they go in one way and then they come out the I, I they go in one. No, they don't. They come out the same way they came in. They do, but then how do they not see any teeth? They do when they're going out. Yeah, but how do they not see any teeth when they're going in? Maybe its teeth were were you know, retracted dark. or something. Yeah, or, or or in dark. I don't know. I just I I I've had that question for, since I was a kid. Like, why does why does Han not realize he's flying into a giant space Cthulhu Cthulhu's butthole? Yeah, that worm is really cute though. <laughs> it, it looks so it looks so adorable. Like when it when it reaches up, like as as the falcon flies out. It's it's like a charmingly kind of kind of off stop motion effect. Uh, every time I see that, I just can't stop thinking about the Ropod Chicken segment where he he's upset that he lost another one, and then they order uh, Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> I I do think it's interesting the way that is interesting that the way the Emperor phrases phrases it is that the son of Anakin Skywalker is still alive. Um, and it's because it's they're trying to, they're trying very hard not to spoil the twist. Yeah. Apparently no one knew about this twist except for, I mean, very few people knew about this. I think it was basically Lucas Kasdan, because uh, Lee Brackett, I think had fallen ill and was, um, she hadn't passed yet. She was on her way to passing. So it's basically Lucas and Kazdan were the only people who knew. And then eventually he had to tell uh, Mark Hamill. And of course he had to tell James Earl Jones after the fact, but it was basically, and I think Gary Kurtz knew. So basically five people in the entire production knew that because they didn't want that to be spoiled anywhere, which, you know, it seems like such a trite surprise now in retrospect because everyone knows who Luke's father is. Spoilers, it's it's Darth Vader. Um just imagine what it's what it was like to be on set that day they filmed that. Yeah, like imagine like you're the actor playing Darth Vader and then Mark Hamill is bawling his eyes out and screaming. He's like what like Darth Vader? I'm Darth Vader. Just offered to take Luke and get some ice cream. Why is he acting like this? I was gonna say it's interesting in the larger context because Darth Vader's Darth Vader saying that if he could be turned, he could be a great asset. In the context of the movie, kind of in the context of all these movies, kind of seems like maybe a kernel of good is trying to save his son, but also he sees his son as a way to overthrow the emperor, which honestly he, he, uh, he wanted to overthrow the emperor from the beginning. That's what he, that's what he offered to Padme on Mustafar before Padme, before he killed Padme was, you know, we can rule the galaxy together. No, I'm more powerful than the emperor. We can overthrow him and then I'll be in charge. It's interesting. If if he if he was any any bit of a man like that wouldn't have just been a lie to curry favor with her. Yeah, 
but I, I I think it's interesting that 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 thought process is still is still in him. He's know? not he's not as much of a wife guy as he thinks. He's not even a simp. It's 2021, everyone. <laughs> Stay woke. Oh, oh boy. When we get to the sequel trilogy, ugh. Oh, but yeah. That was definitely definitely a product of the 2010s. Also, I think Vader also murders someone in this. You know how in Rogue One we said that uh, Darth Vader doesn't make puns? I've noticed that he has a lot more one-liners than I thought he did before. Yeah, but they're not puns. Yeah, but he—he's—he's—he's he's, he's a bit more of a dick. He's a bit more. He very much confirms the anxieties of his underlings. Yeah, like, like he—he's—he's he's not. He wants to tell them that no, he's not stupid. Yes, if you fuck up, I will fuck your shit up. Don't choke on your ambitions. Is a dumb pun, but you know, is choking a guy and saying, I find your lack of faith disturbing any better? No, that's just cruel. That's just straight up cruel. <laughs> yeah. At least, at least before he was trying to tell a joke, you know, Krennic could have been like, <laughs> good one, sir. <laughs> so we want to go on to act three. Yep. Oh yeah. Let's go on to act three. <laughs> The Falcon arrives at the Cloud City in Bespin, and, the, and their heroes are greeted by Lando Calrissian. At first, tensions seem high, but then things calm down, and Lando seems like an okay guy. But things might not be all as they seem, as C-3PO wanders off and gets himself exploded. <laughs> Back on Dagobah, Luke has made the decision to travel to Bespin to save his friends after receiving a vision of them crying out in pain. Yoda and Obi-Wan beg him to stay as he is not ready to face Vader and must complete his training, but Luke is all, fuck that, I got this, and he leaves. And as he leaves, Obi-Wan laments that Luke is their last hope, but maybe not. Back on Bespin, Leia is suspicious of the hospitality granted them by Lando, but Han is trusting, at least as much as he will trust a scoundrel like Lando. Chewbacca has found C-3PO and is attempting to rebuild him when Lando invites everyone to a special little dinner. On the way, he mentions that the threat of the Empire is always hanging over is always hanging over his operations, but he has just struck a deal that will keep the Empire off of their backs forever. And as the door opens, it is revealed that Darth Vader is waiting to join them for dinner. Han tries to get a few lucky shots off at him, but it's no use. They're flanked by a bunch of stormtroopers, and Lando says that there was nothing he could do and that, the, and that the Empire arrived before Han did. Vader intends to hand Han over to the bounty hunter Boba Fett so that he can collect the bounty on him from Jabba the Hutt. He tells Lando that Leia and Chewie will have to remain in Cloud City for, for the rest of days. Lando seems annoyed by the fact that this wasn't explained to him beforehand. After, after surviving a round of seemingly pointless torture, Han is brought back to his cell where Chewie tries where Chewie and Leia try to help him. Lando decides to spill what's going on and says that they're being used as bait to lure Luke Skywalker to, to Cloud City. Han, in turn, gives him a nice sock to the jaw. Deserved it, too. <laughs> Vader's plan is to freeze Luke so that he can be brought to the, Empire, to the Emperor with no trouble. But, seeing as he might not survive the carbon freezing, they decide to test it on Han first. Chewie makes a daring last-minute escape effort, but it is of no use as Han tells him that his job now is to protect the princess. As he is lowered into the carbon freezing chamber, 
Leia finally admits her love to him, and Han merely says he knows. And with the like push of a switch, Han is turned into a carbon frozen popsicle. Fortunately, he is still alive, and thus will be taken to Jabba. Boba Fett is then left with his prize as, as Vader informs Lando that he's decided he is taking Leia and Chewie with him. Lando decides he's had enough as he leads them away. It is at this point that Luke has now arrived at Cloud City. He intercepts the rest of our group, but but they are led away <clears throat> they are led away before that before he is able to intervene. Instead, he is directed to the carbon freezing chamber and is and comes to fit and comes face to face with Darth Vader, at which they each draw their lightsabers and decide to square off. Back with Lando, a group of security officials suddenly surround the Imperial officers and stormtroopers, take their weapons, and lead them away to be confined. Lando says that he's had enough of the Empire's the Empire <clears throat> the Empire's dealings. But Leia and Chewie aren't having it. As Chewie de- as once he's free, Chewie decides to try and choke a bitch. <laughs> He's only released when he says that there's still a chance to save Han, as he tells them where Boba Fett's ship is. They quickly make haste towards towards the towards the <clears throat> towards the landing zone, but it's too late as Slave One leaves the atmosphere of Bespin. By by now, the the Empire has figured out what's going on, and stormtroopers quickly assault them. Meanwhile, back in the carbon freezing chamber, Luke and Vader continue their duel, and it seems Vader has the upper hand as he manages to knock Luke into the carbon freezing chamber. But Luke's jump has reached level three, and he manages to escape just in the nick of time. The duel continues, and Luke appears to knock Vader off the platform. Going after him, he follows him into a service hallway, where Vader decides that enough is enough, and he is going to take Luke down in another way. Detaching several objects from the wall, he hurls them at Luke and pummels him mercilessly until he is thrown out of a window. Back with the others, R2-D2 has managed to to, to rendezvous with them, and... As, as they try to make their way back to the Falcon to escape. <sighs> While overriding the security doors, R2 has, some, R2 has some important news, but is unable to relay it. As the group boards the Falcon, they're quickly pursued by Imperial stormtroopers, but are just narrowly able to escape. Back with Luke, he's, <clears throat> he's been knocked outside into what I, can only discuss, what I can only assume is a giant wind tunnel as Vader approaches again ready to finish him off. Luke is backed into a corner and eventually is disarmed, quite literally, and Vader has him at his mercy. Luke does his best to escape as Vader goads him and tells him that his destiny is with him and that, and that by his side they can overthrow the Empire and says that, says that Obi-Wan never told him what truly happened to his father. Luke says he knows enough, but Vader reveals the shocking truth that he is the father. Dun, dun, dun! Yes, it's the most shocking episode of Maury ever. <laughs> Luke is in disbelief, but his feelings, no, his feelings do not betray him as he, as he knows that what he hears is the truth. Vader says there's no way out, that Luke ha- ha- has only one option but to join him, but Luke takes the other option, which is to take a ride on Cloud City's wacky tube ride. Unfortunately, the exit is still very much under construction and he is thrown out the bottom of the... <laughs> the station. Unable to climb back inside, he has no other option but to try to reach out to Leia. Somehow she is able to hear him, and she convinces Lando to turn the ship around, and they manage to rescue Luke. Exiting the atmosphere of Bespin, the Executor is waiting for them, and are ready to tractor beam them on board. Lando tries to activate the hyperdrive, but alas, it still does not work, despite the fact that he is assured that it had been repaired. 
Lando and Chewie quickly try to repair it, but R2 has the brilliant idea of turning it off and turning it back on again, and they make the jump to, li to light speed. It's like a <laughs> Vader is left in stunned silence as he turns and walks towards the bridge, probably to kill very many officers. We conclude our movie on board, a, <clears throat> on board the Rebel flagship, where Luke has received a, a, a robot hand prosthetic, and Lando and Chewie are taking the Millennium Falcon in an attempt to save Han, leaving us the setup for our next movie. The end. Oh, man. Hey. Ben, why didn't you tell <sighs> me? Why didn't you tell me? He didn't sound exactly like Peter Lorre, but, <laughs> but I mean, not Peter Lorre, fucking... Uh, yeah, Peter Lorre. Oh, man. So, the third act of this movie. Um, what do we make of Luke just straight up ignoring Yoda and Obi-Wan's very clear... You know, they are very clear about the fact that if Luke goes, he will fail. Dumb fucking asshole. Because if he didn't go, he didn't help at all. No, he, he, the only thing he did was get himself hurt. I mean, Leia and Chewie basically rescued themselves. Uh, Han isn't dead, he's just frozen. It's, it's one of those examples of how, in a weird, it's kind of a weird parallel, but like, what drives Anakin to do the things he does and to fall to the dark side is him basically misinterpreting, you know, visions of Padme's eventual death. Luke is doing the same thing that his dad is doing. And yeah, but do you think that the movie implies that like, if he had not gone anywhere, then they probably would have been completely done, done with. I think, I think what Yoda basically is saying to Luke is that maybe they die, maybe they don't, but if you try to take on Vader by yourself, you're going to make things worse. That That is basically the point, is that Luke is trying to control a situation that he has no control over at all. Yeah, because Yoda right. says multiple times he can't see what the future is because the future is always changing. So it's not like the future is written in stone, right? It is not for certain that if Luke goes off, or if, if Luke stays on Dagobah, it is not for certain that Han and Chewie and Leia will all die. It's not. And I think that's the point that Yoda is trying to get across to Luke. But Luke is too driven by his recklessness and his need to do right to even for a moment consider that him not going might be the best decision. He has to go help his friends regardless. I mean I still I still think that there's something to be admired for for like his attempt at heroism. Yeah. Um but but I guess but at the at the end of the day this still is like a the sort of in the in the grand scheme of the trilogy the the downer second act. Yeah. So. I mean in the grand scheme of like the entire saga in general, we see Luke doing these things that his father did. Anakin has to go save his mother because he has 
visions of her being tortured by the sand people. And he has to go and he has to go save her. And when he succumbs to that, he realizes that he's too late to save her anyways. And then he goes out and murders a bunch of people because he's, he can't deal with it. He can't bear the fact that he wasn't there. If we're trying to connect the dots, right? He, right. he Anakin is upset because he had this premonition. He knew that something was going to go wrong. He should have been able to go, but no one would let him. And then look what happens. And that's the source of his anger. Right. Luke is kind of in the same boat where he is certain for certain that if he doesn't go and he doesn't do something, his friends will die. And he takes the same reckless path. Only his friends are better equipped than Anakin's mother was to escape on their own. Like really think about it. What, what difference does Luke showing up on cloud on cloud city do like what, what good does it do? Considering everything that happens, you know, I'm, I'm, I was thinking over that, and it's not so much what Luke does, but what R two does, right? Because he's the one who ends up fixing the hyperdrive at the end, right? So that is probably the only, the only positive thing that comes out of this is that R two happens to be there in order to save them at the last second. So, I think for. At a certain point, like after Luke's vision quest in the in the Dagobah cave, when he when he faces Vader, immediately destroys him and sees his own face. Aside from the foreshadowing, I think he at least maybe not consciously desires this, but he at least is able to test like his metal against the dark side from a mental perspective. Like because Vader tempts him, Vader tells them tells him the truth. And although he's left with certain mistrust, retro retrospective mistrust of Obi-Wan, he potentially knows now that, that he won't he won't fall to the dark side. The benefit that he got out of that is ultimately the truth of who he is. But this could just be like outside of outside of the actual events happening. That's true. I don't I Again, it's it's hard for me because so much of my thoughts about Luke in this trilogy are are combined with how I feel about the things he does in The Last Jedi and it's it's right. so hard to like parse that. I feel like I'm leaving stuff out, but there's there's nothing you can do except point out that Again, for people who have seen it, Luke is going to do something in The Last Jedi that people say that Luke Skywalker would never do. But I... For the record... Yeah, I'm sorry. For the record, I, I've always thought that the portrayal of him in The Last Jedi was good. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Consistent. This Luke is very much that Luke that does that thing. Yes in The Last Jedi. And uh, I guess we'll get more into it more in, in Jedi, because I feel like I'm going to have a big old Luke Skywalker rant. We're, we're, right. that, that is going to be the episode of many rants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll just be the boosters for you, for you both because I'll likely be on your side. Yeah, it's it's Luke is. I will just say that I don't feel like Luke is mischaracterized in the in the Last Jedi. I think there are moments where there are parts that could have been tweaked to make him seem a little bit different, but by and large, the loop that exists specifically in this movie is still a part of the loop that exists in that movie. Yes. Um, also, you, do you think that Leia's mistrust of Lando and of the situation... I was gonna I've, I was gonna ask this, but like Leia, e- even at this point, Leia is not supposed to be Luke's sister. That is that is not a decision that is made. Well, here's the thing: I feel like they were hinting at it a little bit because Luke is able to contact her through the Force. Yes, but but I think that the only thing that that proves, or the only thing that that reveals, is that she's Force sensitive. Right. If we're not getting so so like caught up in terminology or or but then there's also the whole there is another part. That's again, that's that's just she's able to sort of understand these things. The reason why Yoda says there's another is because Luke was supposed to have another sister that was supposed to star in a trilogy that happened after Return of the Jedi. Lucas basically knew at the beginning of writing Empire. Because it was an idea he had, it, it was an idea he originally had that Luke had a sister. Uh, Luke had a sister, and the original conception, and one of the funny things about people being like, "Oh, Disney has prostituted this series," is that Lucas wanted there to be twelve movies in this thing. He was he wanted there to be the original trilogy, a prequel trilogy. And then two more trilogies set after Return of the Jedi. And so what was going to happen to kick off Return, basically, is that this sister that Luke had was going to be revealed to be like, was going to be revealed and return. After Return of the Jedi happens, then in the next trilogy of movies, the movies would revolve around this sister. The problem is that Lucas realized that introducing a completely new character that no one knows about in the last movie of the trilogy made no fucking sense. And so the only character that he could make the sister was Leia. That's why even in that's why even in this movie we still have them kissing. We still see that Luke is somewhat jealous of Han. The The reason that is is because Leia wasn't supposed to be Luke's sister until way late. Like, after this movie was in the can, in the pre-production for Jedi, in the writing process, that's where Lucas comes up with the idea that Leia's the sister. Again, this is one of those examples of them, like, tripping into success because they have Leia show these moments, have these moments where she seems as though she might be force sensitive. You know, I was going to say that her distrust of Lando and of the situation is an example of her being slightly force sensitive. You know, her being able to hear Luke is an example, excuse me, is an example of her being force sensitive. But those are just 
those just so happen to be happy accidents. Like it's 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 just a coincidence that Leia winds up being the sister. I mean, it worked, but it, it one could argue that it wasn't supposed to. Shifting gears, I don't necessarily think that there's anything more that needs to be said about the, the how famous and iconic the revelation of of Vader being. Aside from adding is. another one to the traumas of Luke Skywalker. <laughs> oh He's, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. That that his father's a, a super also Nazi. losing his hand. Yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, we could talk about it, but it's it's. It's one of the best reveals in the history of film, so it's been talked about yeah. ad nauseum. Um, right, we, we could we could at least talk about the, the lightsaber duel beforehand, which is pretty good in terms of showing that despite how outclassed Luke is, he has a few tricks up his sleeve. The, the, tr- the, the physical training certainly helped. <laughs> like, he has a bit more stamina, but nevertheless quickly gets worn out. I think it's the fact that Vader is just playing with him. Like... He he yeah. wants to see how good Luke is. And so he kind of he doesn't go as far with Luke as he could up until the point where Luke pushes like he falls off that platform down that service hallway and then that's when Vader is like oops. Oh. Yeah. Like he that is when Vader is like okay now I'm going to show him what the dark side of the forest can do. And that's when he just starts ripping stuff off the walls and throwing it at Luke. Do I think that is just to show how completely outclassed that Luke really is. Right. And so I think if we're going to talk about that scene, we have to talk about it in just in terms of how, again, it's a lightsaber battle that tells a story. And we didn't get a lot of those in the prequels, and we won't get a lot of those in the sequels. But so far, every lightsaber battle that has happened in this trilogy has meant something and has had an emotional weight of some kind. And shows us where our characters are relative to each other. Luke is, you know, Luke is reckless in... Even if he does have a few tricks up his sleeve, he is so completely out of his depth. You know, Vader can eventually just he Vader can just toy with them until he doesn't want to be bothered anymore. That's he doesn't that's even turn off his hand until Luke gets a lucky shot on him. Yeah, yeah, and that can easily be justified as okay, you finally made Anakin pissed off. And he can't control himself when he's angry. So he's toying with them. He's toying with them. He's toying with them. Luke finally is able to get a shot off. And Anakin is like, okay, we're done. And cuts off his fucking hand. And is like, you're done. Like, you've been beaten. Enough of this. Um, also, I wanted to say that seeing Lando in this movie uh, made me appreciate Donald Glover's... Um, portrayal of Lando a lot more. Yeah. Billy D does a very good job of of the going from from very confident to to very very like hostly that's not even a word to very conflicted to to regretful 
like within what like 10 minutes 20 minutes he there's just an entire range of 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 kind of i don't i don't want to just say emotion just an, an entire range of characterization that that uh, Billy yeah, Williams you get the sense you get the sense that he is trying to do what's right, and that's one of the things that Han remarks on is that you know Lando sounds like a business. He says you sound like a businessman, and it's supposed to be because Lando has grown since the last time you know Han and Lando saw them, and you know Lando's not just trying to escape himself. He makes sure he says over the intercom. The Empire is about to take over the city, you know, get out while you still can. You know, he is conscious of the fact that he doesn't... The whole reason he makes this deal is essentially because... Or at least I think the reason he makes a deal is because he wants to make sure everyone is protected. Everyone is a... Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Everyone is protected. Everyone is able to get out and be safe. And so there is a... He's making... He's making a trade. He's he's a gambler, so he's gambling. He's gambling that doing this will ultimately benefit everyone in the long run. It'll benefit Han. Well, it'll it won't benefit Han, but it will at least be able to keep Leia safe and Chewie safe, and it will be able to keep the people that he is essentially in charge of safe and so yeah him, him in this movie he's so again he's not on screen a lot but he's so effective and i i don't think i yes. ever noticed that before until i was kind of trying to watch it critically but yeah we talk about this being the down ending of of the original trilogy but again there's a reason why this is the greatest this is one of the greatest movies of all time. I guess we can get into like our final thoughts because man, this uh, backlash, what are your final thoughts about, about the empire strikes back? Do you even have to ask? <laughs> I mean, empire strikes back. It's, it's hands down the best star Wars movie ever made. Probably one of the best films ever made, period. Yeah, there's not a there there is that. Um <laughs> I I actually prepared something because <laughs> of the last time, but but yeah, essentially like we we're discussing like pretty shortly before the recording how like I'd describe the best word to describe this movie is like the first movie is scrappy but capable. This one is just fucking concise. Uh, everything that worked about the previous one is sanded down finely. From the standpoint of cause and effect, each scene rewards the viewer for investing their attention. And beyond that, the movie has some of those recognizable and fondly remembered imagery and sequences of the entire franchise, and indeed, like, Hollywood film film in general. I mean, I gave it guff prior for overusing the Empire March theme, but... Each use is the is the reason why a lot of people see it as as one of the most recognizable late motifs in the in the entire franchise, the entire series. Despite small flaws, um, it's like the, any any flaws that like I could point out, like Alec Guinness, or or the, there's like less weirdness is is a, still just small and personal, and the, and the movie is holds up very well. 
Yeah, I mean, I I just agree. This this is the best Star Wars stars movie. It it just is. I think some there are those who would argue that it's Return of the Jedi, but those people are wrong. Uh, they are they are just yeah. wrong. It is. It takes itself just seriously enough. And you can tell that Kirshner is able to get fantastic performances from Harrison Ford, from Carrie Fisher, from Mark Hamill, from Frank Oz. His fingerprints are all over this movie. You, in a lot of ways, if you've seen George Lucas's movies before, and certainly we, we've seen we've seen four of them now, you can tell that this is not a George Lucas movie. There is so much... This movie has so much soul. It is expertly crafted. It is like watching a chef work with the... the well, not even the finest of ingredients. It's watching a chef take pretty good ingredients and in making the best, the, the best meal ever. It's the best meal ever. And for anyone who wants to say that this is the best movie of all time, it's, I'm, I, I would have a hard time arguing that it's not. The only thing that I would say is that it requires you have to have to watch another movie. That's the only reason why I would say that it's not the, the best movie ever. But it's certainly one of the best movies ever. And it's it sets a stage that I don't feel like Return of the Jedi could ever live up to. Even if it wasn't for George Lucas's kind of fuckery in the next... In the production of the next movie. Because uh, I think it's... I think Return of the the Jedi doesn't have the same soul and feels a lot more like a corporate blockbuster than this did. This feels a lot more intimate, and that one feels a lot more soulless, I guess. Maybe I'll come up with a different opinion of that. When we... I'm sure we'll get a better understanding of it once uh, once we're doing the episode on Return of the Jedi. Yeah. I, what are your guys' initial thoughts before you, we go into next, before we leave and we tackle Return of the Jedi as the finale of the original trilogy? All I can think about is people who get mad at the new trilogy for kind of uh, overbranding itself with a lot of marketable material. Have you all seen Return of the Jedi? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad I'm seeing the despecialized edition, so I don't have to watch the 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 uh, music video anymore. Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. Um, but but yeah, I it's been a while since I've seen it, and at the very least, like there there are still some like memorable moments involved. There are some good sequences. It doesn't have like the utter incomprehensibility of the entire prequel trilogy or the the tail end of the sequel trilogy so there are things to look forward to yeah the thing i think of is that george lucas was disappointed with the direction that erwin kirshner took the franchise and so he took control of it he got the director that would do what he wanted and then he said f it let's just remake a new hope 
you, you want to talk about how a force the force awakens is basically just a new hope jedi did it first and it probably did it worse but and i'm really, the thing is that like jedi is not it's not a bad movie right it's it functionally it's not a bad movie i know i will have a good time watching return of the jedi upon my initial thoughts is that it feels kind of soulless and on that bombshell you can help us out by leaving us a review on apple podcasts a five-star review you can find us on twitter at sequelize it um do you guys want to plug your own socials uh, you could follow me on Twitter at no Chris Alive. And you can follow me on Twitter at FF Backlash. And that's going to be it for this episode of Sequelize It. We will be back next week and we will be finishing off the original trilogy with Revenge of the Jedi. Uh, wait, wait. Nope, nope, yep. wait, no. Sorry, Return of the, uh, the Jedi's Return. Just as we leave, did you guys know that the reason why the Wrath of Khan is the Wrath of Khan is because Lucasfilm basically pressured Paramount to not call it the Vengeance of Khan because he thought it was going to be Revenge of the Jedi? I had no idea about about that related to Star Trek, actually. Yeah. The Wrath of Khan is, is, is good, though, so... It's it it rolls yeah. off the tongue. I guess we'll get to that when we get to the Star Trek movies. But next week we'll be rolling right on with the Skywalker saga. Uh until next time, this has been KC. I am your Fox from Backlash. And I'm no Chris Alive sequel as it's Mastodon of the Monotone. And we will see you next time.